Being in business for a century is no small feat for any company. In 2020, Wilbur Ellis, a diversified ag technology, animal feed, and specialty chemicals company, kicked off its celebration of 100 years serving customers. But what's next? And with this longevity, are there lessons for farmers? Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. John Buckley took over as CEO of Wilbur Ellis in 2018 and has more than 30 years of global management experience. He paused his busy schedule to talk with Farm Progress and during our conversation, he shares some interesting insights on what it takes to last a century. But we look to the future too and how innovation will play a role in agriculture, including an interesting program Wilbur Ellis fired up as part of its century celebration. This is a multi-generational private business Let's learn what keeps it going. Well, Mr. Buckley, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Thank you, Willie. So this is exciting. We're talking about something that we don't get to talk about very often, and that's a birthday. Wilbur Ellis is celebrating its 100th year this year. And I guess the the question comes up, uh, how do you look at that from your perspective as CEO? Well, I consider myself very fortunate to be the CEO on our 100th birthday. Uh, It's uh, it's pretty amazing. You you know, we had... uh, we actually had a year-long celebration, um, you know, starting in, in late June of last year uh, up until this year to kind of spend a little bit of time looking looking back uh, to our history and, and uh, trying to draw some lessons from the past, uh, and, but then also kind of pivot and look forward and say, how do we uh, <clears throat> how do we make it another hundred years? Uh, and it's been uh, it's been fascinating. Uh, a lot of a lot of good lessons to learn from a company that makes it a uh, hundred years, and to make it a hundred years and remain, uh, you know, privately held uh, by the by the Wilbur family. So yeah, you are privately held, and I guess that's an interesting question. You know, we we've, we've talked we talked offline here before we started. Less than one percent, one half of one percent of com- companies in this country are a hundred years old. They're usually absorbed, purchased. De, uh, you know, devolved, whatever happens yeah. to companies. So what do you think kept Wilbur Ellis together this long? And then we'll talk about the future. But what what is it that gave it the strength to be around a century? Well, you know, it, and, you know, like I said, I think I have the luxury yeah. of spending the time looking back over the past hundred years. Yeah. We did something kind of cool, which was uh, every month uh, for 10 months, we took a look back at a decade of our history. Uh, and say, you know, what was the lesson from that decade? Um, and, uh, you know, certainly it starts with the founder of the company, right? Entrepreneurial approach. And, and he led the company for many, many years, many of the decades that we were, uh, you know, that we existed. Uh, and certainly his drive uh, and his, uh, his approach to business was a big, big key to our success. But then he imbued that culture into the company and that, you know, outlasted him and, and you know, the, the family uh, maintained its ownership of the company for all that period, and uh, and to this day maintains a, a very keen interest in maintaining the company uh, going forward. And when you look at the at the lessons learned, one of the big things that to me that jumps out is resiliency. Um, you know, certainly it's been a tough 18 months uh, for for everyone uh, with the the pandemic that we've been going through. But you look back and you think about some of the challenges that a company like ours would have gone through in the last 100 years. You think, wow, we've bounced back from a lot of things. First of all, it started around the time of the end of the last pandemic. uh, And then you go through uh, the Great Depression. 
uh, World War II. I mean, a large part of our business and, and our history is dealing with you know, trade with Asia. Uh, and we had a number of employees who were interned during a majority of World War II in Asia as, as uh, prisoners of war, even though they were citizens. They weren't in the, in the army. Um, and uh, to, to, to be able to survive and not, not only survive, but thrive through that. I think resiliency is a, is a big piece that you say, wow, that's that's pretty key. And and which was great for us to be able to review that and celebrate that during a year where you had to be resilient to be able to get through the past uh, past 18 months. And certainly 2020 was a bit of a challenging year. So that I think we benefited in this in this past uh, past period uh, from looking back and, and thinking and seeing what the you know, what our predecessors had gone through. And then you, you layer on top of that all the changes in industry that occurs over that time, right? I mean, lots of bold moves made by the company uh, as industries changed um, to, you know, either uh, pull back on some investments that they thought industries were perhaps changing against them and then double down investments in places they thought they could win. Uh, and ultimately, those decisions created the company that we are today. You know, you, you bring up an interesting point in that resilience is an issue. One of the challenges for a family-owned company is succession. You don't have Wilbur or Ellis in your name. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a big move for a company where it was started with an entrepreneur to bring in an outsider and make it work. Uh, and you're not the first outsider to be CEO of Wilbur Ellis. I right. know that. But how did the company family make that adjustment? Yeah, I I think as you point out, I'm I'm not the first uh, uh, non-family member to be CEO of the company, uh, but the prior uh, uh, CEOs who were non-family members had been employees, and so I think okay. um, you know they they were quite aware of the culture and uh, and were attuned to the dynamics of the company, so it was a little bit easier transition. Uh, but the more recent one with myself, I think there was uh, you know a very uh, careful planning on the part of the board. Uh, and and my predecessor John Thatcher, who who is a family member, uh, grandson of the founder, and he had been at the helm for a little over 11 years as CEO of the company. And so you know John uh, took a uh, engaged the board, but also had a very clear personal you know his fingerprints are on the decision to make a to make a change in the succession, uh, and he continues as executive chair. So, you know, the partnership between myself and John, I think, is really important uh, and has been important in the past three and a half years that I've been here to make sure that that transition goes well and, and that we continue to, you know, operate with the integrity and the values that the, that the family has. Uh, and I, I think that's been successful and I've been very happy with it. So, you know, I think it was, you know, having a plan uh, and then paying close attention to the details. It's been a hallmark, I think, of the transitions over the over the many years of the company, and I think it was uh, also represented in this transition here to me. It's interesting, you know, you you work with a lot of family farmers. I mean, Wilbur Ellis yeah. sells to farmers, and their family operations that need to succeed over the generations, they do bring family back in. Although there's more and more stories of non-family members or you know married family members coming in. But are there lessons that Wilbur Ellis learned that a farmer could take away from your history? Well, I think that's, you know, that's a great point. And we are a multi-generational business serving many multi-generational businesses. Uh, and so I think we could we could share lessons learned. Uh, you know, I think that 
you know, what we consider to be critical is the values of the company, right? So it starts and ends there, right? If we're not adhering to those, well, then what are we doing in business? And I think that many of our customers share the same kind of thinking, right? Which is there's a purpose and a reason why we're here, why we come to work every day, why we do what we do. Uh, and that really needs to be front and center to everybody and uh, within the company, the leadership, et cetera. And, you know, finding um, finding people who share that is really important when you bring somebody in from outside of the company. For me personally, when I joined the company, it was one of the things that I really was happy to see, right? A talk, a discussion about values. Uh, and, you know, in a way, given that it's privately family, privately held and family owned, it, it's very clear that you can execute against that, right? Right. Public companies have values as well, uh, but they, you know, sometimes have other challenges that maybe stretch them in different ways. And most of my career uh, prior to joining Wilbur had been in public companies. Um, but, you know, to see uh, and to have conversations with folks who actually own the company and when they talk about the values of the company, they mean it, they feel it, it's, it's kind of, it's visceral. Um, so I think it all, it all stems from that. And I think that's what, you know, when I meet customers who, you know, own their, own their businesses and, you know, their, their fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers, et cetera, and have been engaged in the business for many, many years. That's what I think I really, that I see in common, right. Is, is saying, well, you know, we have a purpose. We know what that is. We're very clear about it. Uh, and when we, you know, when we come to work every day, that's what we're thinking about. Um, and, I think there's an aspect also kind of pivoting from the past to the future. There's an mm -hmm. aspect of saying, and this is, a, this is something that I want to pass on. <clears throat> this is something that I want to make sure it continues. And I'm, I'm, I'm not only dedicated to it today, but I'm, I'm dedicated to it for the future. And that's something that I feel personally as well, which is I'm, I'm the steward of this, uh, of this great company for a few years of its history and then uh, I need to be sure that I'm setting it up for success for the next hundred years. Um, you know, we were talking and you mentioned, uh, you know, less than one half of one percent of, of, of companies last a hundred years. I got to look it up. I don't know what the number is for 200 years. So, you know, <laughs> we got to we're going to it's smaller. I'm sure. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, you know, but that's our intention. Right. We really want to want to continue to be around the family enjoys owning the company and, and being engaged with it and and uh we want that to continue for a long period of time yet so that is fantastic and i think the other let's take a different tack here in the words of people who often ask what have you done for me lately <laughs> um what what is what is wilbur ellis looking toward that next hundred years what do you need to be to be, I mean, what services do you have to offer? What do you see with regard to your engagement with technology and farmers? How does Wilbur Ellis look at the next hundred years? I mean, you don't go that far. Nobody has a hundred year plan, but if right. you're looking at your future, what are you looking at? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, exactly. We don't have a hundred year plan yet, but certainly, uh, you know, as we look forward, uh, you mentioned technology. I think that certainly has a, has a big role to play going in the future. I think it has, of course, you know, <clears throat> when we look forward, we talk about technology when we look backward we don't think there is any technology but you know 20 years ago some of the things we're doing which are common today were high tech right so you know we're looking forward and saying yeah we're going to be uh, going to have a big focus on technology uh, you know we think we have uh, a big role to play in helping bring as we have in the past bringing new technologies to the marketplace 
the difference I would say now is that there's been in the last five, maybe as long as 10 years ago, but certainly the last five, a huge increase in the amount of investment in technology and agriculture. Um, and it's coming from different directions than we would have targeted in the past, right? So in, in, in the past, we would have seen some large multinational companies making large multi, you know, hundreds of million dollars investments in, in research and development every year and bringing new technology to the market. Now we're seeing it come from a kind of a different direction with, uh, with startup companies, venture capital coming in. Um, you know, even, even as you talk about, in, you know, investing in land, we're seeing, you know, pension funds and other kind of uh, long-term investors coming in and investing in it. So there's a shift, I think, in the, and, and an acceleration in the, in the potential application of, of new technology to farming and to the other businesses we serve uh, as a company. And, and so we think we have a role to play there. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're, uh, today we're an investor. Uh, and we have a, a venture capital arm of the company where, you know, we think that, um, you know, given what we understand about the markets and the needs and the pain points of our customers, that we've got a pretty unique view of, of what the problems are that need to be solved. And we can, you know, kind of target those technologies, make strategic investments uh, in those companies. And then when you do that, it's not, it's not simply for a financial gain. It's really when you have that investment there, then you can sit down with that company and have a good discussion around how they could be successful. And we've done, our, our Cavallo Ventures Group has done a great job of, of finding the right kind of companies, we think, that, that have technologies that our customers can really use, but then having a dialogue with those companies around how to shape their business and their technology such that it it has the best utility for the marketplace. And, you know, I think that will continue to be a focal point for us uh, and really will shape, you know, the next five to 10 year plan. We'll look at the, the 95 years after that later. But but I think that's really uh, more and more going to be a focus uh, to bring new technologies to the marketplace. You know, our customers are getting and they always do get bombarded with new ideas, new thoughts, new tech. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I think it's important for for us to to spend the time and effort to, to help sort through what what's really, you know, what's really worth uh, spending time on. And then, you know, bringing that to the mar helping bring that to the marketplace, sitting down with our customers and saying, hey, I think this is something you should be looking at. Here's why. Here's what we think it can bring you. Um, and then, you know, maybe others, you know, have a different time. Maybe they're not appropriate for the application. Uh, and I think that's going to continue to be a role that we'll play uh, in in, uh, in the future. Yeah, I think that role is fascinating because of the startups I run across, you would be the bridge to the market. They have a great idea, yeah. but they have they have no dealers. They have no way to get to the market. And we all know yeah. that the farm market is efficient and it's easy to it's actually easy to get to farmers if you already know how to get to a dealer. But right. that it's it's making that next bridge. So I'm sure Cavallo Ventures. That's a big part of the, you know, the idea is already there. It's a big part of the adventure is how the heck are you going to market this product or does it really have application in the market, which is fascinating. Also gives you kind of a ground floor look at a lot of new ideas. I assume that maybe you'll end up acquiring too. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think that's exactly right. I think we are, we are a bridge uh, to the marketplace. As I mentioned, a lot of these ideas are coming from people yeah. who not traditionally have served this market. So they don't, 
they don't really know, right? They don't really have an understanding how best to approach the marketplace. And I think that that dialogue is pretty important. It's also, you know, we we, you know, motivation for the announcement we made on our hundredth anniversary of this innovation award. Yes. Um, that we're, you know, we're we're targeting at university students to to help them get further engaged in the industry, help them say, hey, this is an important thing. We're producing food for the world. Um, try and draw attention to that and, and use the, uh, the creative minds that are available out there to come up with new ideas, new angles, new thoughts about uh, how, to, how to produce more food for a growing world. Uh, and so we're really excited by that. And I think that's another role we'll play in the future is just continue to try and spur innovation um, to, uh, to, to increase the availability of, uh, of food for uh, a larger population down the road. Let's talk about that award for a minute. I mean, it, it, it was just announced, I think, recently. Yeah. Um, there's a there's an enrollment period, but university students are encouraged to apply. How how are you going to select the the honorees, winners, however you call them? <laughs> yeah, well, the, the awardees, the winners. Yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're well. Hope, first of all, I think you know we're we're expecting it to be teams of students. You mm-hmm. know the the uh, project teams that uh, you know have an idea, do some you know, basic work on formulating the idea a bit better, market research to see what's right. available. Uh, and then the, you know, the idea was that we we would have uh, Wilbur Ellis employees, teams of Wilbur Ellis employees as judges to to evaluate the ideas on, you know, certainly, you know, their novelty, yeah. um, their their ability to, you know, their the basic rudiments of a business case. So, so uh, you know, a structure to say, hey, we think this could be good because, um, and, uh, and, you know, that we think will have, uh, or could have an impact on the marketplace, you know, impact on the production of food. Um, and, you know, the real idea is to motivate students to think more about the, about agriculture and motivate them to get engaged in, in food production. And it doesn't simply have to be on the farm ideas. It could be, you know, in the, in the value chain and supply chain into, uh, into ultimately into consumers, um, but that's what we're really trying to do is draw attention, motivate, uh, attract talent to, you know, our industry. Uh, and then yes, uh, you know, why wouldn't one of these ideas be, you know, go into a venture business that, uh, Cavallo would then invest in and, uh, would have an impact on the marketplace down the road. That'd be fan- That's the ultimate. And that'd be a fantastic outcome. Of course, bringing attention to any of that is fantastic too, because there are a lot of ideas bubbling up in student groups around the country. Yeah. So this could be very, very cool. You know, we uh, I joke about this, but the the startup community is often two people who went to college together <laughs> who ended up, <laughs> something, ended up thinking their idea was taking it forward to Silicon Valley and going to some angel investor. So you're yeah. technically that first step angel investor with this innovation award, which is kind of cool. It'll be interesting yeah. to see where that goes. So we'll, we will be following up on that when you've got your um, awardees and what that means. One area that I, I was curious about is, you know, you've got a big organization and you're working with a lot of different parts of the value chain. How does how does data play into that to make you better at what you do? I mean, are you analyzing your information differently than ever before? How do, and how does how does a farmer get to play in that or at least know that that's going to benefit them? Yeah, obviously, that's uh that's a big point of discussion in the marketplace today, right? About uh, data and the, you know, as our ability to analyze data, you know, uh, as an industry ramps up, 
uh, it becomes even more important and, and, and we're focused on it as well. Obviously, you know, we've got agronomic tools, ag verdict in our case is what we've developed. Uh, and, uh, you know, that agronomic tool cap, you know, we capture data from our farmer customers, uh, or they can input it themselves, you know, whatever, whatever works best. Uh, and, you know, over multi-seasons, it definitely helps us to be able to have a, a good informed discussion with our customers around, you know, what do we see next season? What do we think we should do in season based on the data that we've had, the, the track record, the trending analysis that we're able to do? Uh, and I, I think, and we are investing further in our ability to analyze that data and to put even more sophisticated tools against it so you can start getting a bit better at predicting uh, the needs and, and the outcomes uh, that we can expect based on actions that we take. Uh, and we're seeing that across the board. We're not the only ones who are doing that and looking at that. And, you know, uh, certainly as, as we look at some of these new companies coming in, startups, et cetera, they're also uh, having a, a lot a gathering a lot of information, new tools that are going on to fields that are going to allow us to capture even more data uh, and, you know, converting that into meaningful information that allows somebody to make a decision, a better business decision for them is really what the objective is. And, and we're very focused on that. Yeah, I think that's part of the conversation with the farmer. It's like this is anonymized information. If, if we can have it, we can make help you make better decisions. Um, the value of the data is not that big if it's one farm, but if it's yeah. 100 farms or 500 farms and you can look at weather changes or supply chain issues or inventory or warranty claims or whatever that might be, that data does pay off for the farmer in the long run. Whether it, And that's pretty interesting to see that unfold. I guess I, I never saw so many people with the title data analyst at <laughs> companies. You know, um, there's the seed companies and the biometrics analysts and all that and how much you can do predictability stuff in the marketplace. I want to step back a minute. We've been talking the last about the last 18 months, which has been fascinating. How are you mm. doing on the supply chain side? <laughs> well, yeah, I think about like everybody else, uh, you know, there, it, it, there, there are challenges, um, you know, difficulties in supply chain with regard to transport. It starts with transportation yeah. first, right? Which I think everybody, we had challenges with the uh, drivers, uh, you know, as an industry and as a mm -hmm. country, really uh, challenges with drivers prior to the pandemic. Uh, and then, of course, with the pandemic uh, shifts, that's that's just been exacerbated. Um, then, of course, you've got port congestion, right, for anything that's being imported, which a lot of inputs are imported. So you've got port congestion on top of it. Uh, and then, you know, just the challenge, well, we had the Texas freeze, uh, you know, which had a, a bit of an impact on the chemical industry. Uh, and then, um, you know, just the, the shift in demand, right? All of a sudden, you know, everybody wants everything right away. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just put a lot of constraints. So our supply chain folks have been quite busy uh, for, uh, for the, certainly the past 12 months. Uh, and, uh, and, and so there have been some challenges, right? Some, some uh, product uh, availability challenges, uh, but not as bad as we were feared, I would say, um, but not perfect. So we, you know, we continue to look forward now and say, all right, well, now what about next season? How do we, how do we make sure that we're even better prepared than we were this year? Uh, some of the suppliers are talking about some concerns about continued constraint going into next year, but you know, we're 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 making sure that we're on top of it and doing the the best planning that we can.
Well, yeah, and it's 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 been kind of a perfect storm, and it's hard to explain. You you know, you layer in the driving drivers, you layer in the ports, you layer in the seed stocks, basic chemistry issues from Texas. Yeah. And it's sort of like, I don't think you could have sat in a room and thought up more disasters in one meeting. I mean, you do disaster planning, right? I mean, as a CEO, yeah. your management team yep, is like, well, sure. if this, then this. I don't think you could have come up with enough ifs. <laughs> no, I, I don't. Nobody would have constructed this scenario. Uh, you know, we all, uh, if you're doing a business continuity plan, and I've done a few in my career, pandemics come up. Yeah. You know, and everybody talks about them. But honestly, it's, it's, it's not possible to construct a scenario like that. You really have to. And so I go to my resiliency comment that we started talking yeah, about the right. company, right? You really just have to make sure you're nimble, you're flexible, um, you're, you're market aware, you're paying attention to what's happening. Uh, and then you can respond to whatever the challenge is. I think that's the lesson. I don't, you know, folks are saying, okay, now we need to plan for the next pandemic. I, I don't, I don't think so. We need to plan for, and you know, and, and the common, conversation right now should we have just in time inventory or just in case inventory well probably we need to continue to be as efficient as we can but we do need to realize that we it's unlikely we're going to be able to forecast with 100 percent certainty what the future is going to look like so um we need to be a bit more flexible than we were uh and to uh and perhaps have a little bit more in stock than we would have otherwise had um, because you just can't, you, you can't predict these things. And, and, you know, if you look back, this has certainly been a confluence of events that, you know, nobody would have predicted, as you said, but, you know, there have been other times in the, in the past decade where we, things have happened that, you know, the Chinese, uh, supply had been constrained a couple of years prior to that as well, kind of came out of the blue, but, you know, who knows what the next thing's going to be. We just need to plan to be that, flexible, nimble supplier to the industry that uh, that's required. Well, John, this has been a delightful conversation. Congratulations on 100 years. Thanks. And now you only have one other task. Keep the thing going for another 100. I don't see that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. No big deal. (laughs) No, it's really good. I appreciate your time today. Good luck. Uh, The Innovation Award sounds fantastic. We'll and uh, good luck with that as well. And we'll be interested to find out who the honorees are. I think that'll be a fun one. Yeah, I look forward to letting you know. All right. Well, thank you very much, sir. Take care. Thanks, Willie. When University of Washington schoolmates Brayton Wilbur, Floyd Ellis, and Thomas Frank opened their small import-export brokerage trading company in 1921 with a $5,000 investment, did they know they were building what would become a $3 billion global business 100 years later? Eh, Probably not. But creating a culture of resilience and keeping an eye out for opportunities to innovate and enter new markets has paid off in a big way. While farms aren't that big, creating your own culture of resilience and seeking new opportunities can offer returns for your operation too, even in these interesting times. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team and experts in our industry. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs, and the Farm Progress Show and Husker Harvest Days. Those two shows are back and live, so mark your calendar for August 31st, September 1 and 2 for the Farm Progress Show, and September 14th through 16th for Husker Harvest Days. 
Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director of Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.